Hello, everyone, and welcome to One Great History, a podcast all about the great and sometimes not so great things in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm one of your hosts, Sabrina, and I am joined today by Alex. Hello. We are two occasionally employed historians who coerced our friend Nick to help us produce a podcast so we can talk about all the things that we find fun in this city. But we'll start, I think, pretty simply with what Winnipeg is, for those who might not be in the know. Winnipeg is the provincial capital of Manitoba. It is on Treaty 1 territory, and it is home to all sorts of fun things, like uh, the Winnipeg Jets, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, the Winnipeg Gold Eyes, the Winnipeg Moose, all sorts of fun sports teams. There's also um, the Human Rights Museum, as well as the Winnipeg Art Gallery, the Symphony and the Ballet, all sorts of fun arts and cultural organizations, and more restaurants and venues than you can shake a stick at. But that's kind of the touristy pitch. Alex, what do you think of Winnipeg? Uh, oh boy, that's a big question to ask me as the first <laughs> thing to say on our podcast. Um, I mean, people like to rag on Winnipeg a lot. Yeah. That's like, I think the like classic Winnipeg slogan is like, we were born here. What's your excuse? Yep. <laughs> I think every Winnipegger goes through that like period of like Winnipeg hatred. Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Did you go through that? Maybe a little less so. So for I grew up in a small town outside of Winnipeg. So Winnipeg to me was the big, exciting city. And I feel like not everyone shares that feeling. Right. And for me, what really changed that was moving away from Winnipeg for a while. Because when other people started ragging on Winnipeg, I became its defender. Yeah. You have to when you're out of town, right? Totally. I feel like it's like having kind of a weird cousin where like I can make fun of them, but you can't. Like, don't you dare. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So Winnipeg is known for a number of things. We've got a lot more celebrities than you might think that come from here. I feel like the one that I always like is Nia Varlados, who did my Big Fat Greek Wedding, oh. which is the highest grossing romantic comedy of all time. Huh. I'm pretty sure I saw that once. I've seen it many <laughs> times, and I cry every time I watch it. <laughs> We've also got Winnie the Pooh, named Ooh. after Winnipeg. We sure do. And uh, William Stevenson, who was the inspiration for James Bond. That's a pretty cool one. Uh, Burton Cummings, of course. And then associated with that, Randy Bachman and um, also Neil Young. Although Neil Young is kind of an iffy one. People always say Neil Young, but he went to high school here. He was not here for long. No, but we still <laughs> we still claim him. Well, any like chance of tasting fame, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Terry Fox, of course, Canadian hero, kind of undeniable. Yeah. Um, and personal favorites, uh, children's entertainers, Fred Penner and Al Simmons. Which you can't go wrong with their great. Can't go wrong. I think Fred Penner actually kind of like quietly moved to Toronto a couple of years ago. But. What a traitor. How continue, dare Continue to claim him as well. Al Simmons made me cry once and that is my claim to fame encounter with Al Simmons. <laughs> I was, I must have been like eight and I was at one of his shows and he had these shoes that were geese and when he stomped they honked. And we bought a CD from at the end of the show and he told me when I was buying it that if you touched his nose it would honk. But what he would do is there was a tablecloth, so when I touched the nose, he would stomp under the table, so it would sound like it was honking. And I'd never been tricked like that before. <laughs> so I got in the car, and I touched the nose, and it didn't honk, and I cried. And then, and then when we met Al Simmons about a year ago, you went on to tell him that he made you cry as Yeah, a child. and then he told me, I taught you a valuable lesson. <laughs> Bless Al Simmons. He's the kindest man. It was, I think, the greatest Winnipeg celebrity encounter I will ever have. It was very funny. He did tell me also that one kid he did that trick to came back and told him the CD was broken. <laughs> so I didn't do that, at That's least. fair. It's false advertising. <laughs> there are also some uh, pretty uniquely Winnipeg things I think we should maybe go over at the start, just in case we mention something and you're not super familiar with it. I'm going to start with one that gets Alex very fired up, which is dainties. 
Yeah, I love dainties. Um, they're the classic Winnipeg food at like, what are they at? Like, if you ever go to like a school thing, like in the evenings. Yeah, a school oh, meeting, I don't know a what funeral, I'm talking about. Like a, f- a funeral. They're the classic <laughs> thing for funerals. Like a public event or like any kind of a public a light, event. A light wedding lunch. Yes. Would have dainties. And so, sorry, I should explain what dainties are <laughs> for those who are not from Manitoba. Uh, a dainty is like, it's like a plate of various little baked goods. So it's got like Nanaimo bars, like the little carrot cake. Um, usually like the little brownies with the walnuts in them, mm-hmm. all those things. They're my absolute favorite. Um, and I was horrified to find out a little while ago that that is not a thing in other places. So, <laughs> a devastating discovery. If anyone is listening from other places, I would like you to tell me, is that still a thing you have? What do you call them? <laughs> if you don't have them, I'm very sad. <laughs> very sorry for you. <laughs> we also have honey dill, which is definitively not a thing anywhere else. Right. Which I, is... And maybe even more of a small town thing, because I didn't try honey dill until not that long Smile ago. Smile to me. It's, um, it's, it was a staple of my diet for a really long time. <laughs> it still is. It is a mixture of honey, mayonnaise, and dill that you dip chicken fingers in and fries. I don't know that I've ever been to a restaurant with you and your brother where one of you did not order something with honey dill. We have Now to. that I think about it. <laughs> it helps that my brother only eats chicken fingers and honey dill. Yes, that's he does. His, that's the diet staple That's the only my food I've seen him eat. <laughs> We also have uh, socials, which are basically big wedding fundraisers. Essentially, you pay $10, you go and get cheap drinks, you spend way too much money on a silent auction, yeah, and then you win all the prizes and everyone yells at you. In oh, and you put out um, the food layout at socials is also very distinctive. Uh, rye bread and salami and hot dogs. Yes, and pickles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and like little cubes of cheese sometimes. Yeah. I've been to a few that have pizza now and that feels very strange. Oh, yeah. That, that's not allowed. Nick, I have a good time at every social I go to. <laughs> and I have a bad time at every social I go to. This is the big difference between me and Sabrina, <laughs> is that I famously, at my older sister's wedding social, spent it reading a book in the corner. <laughs> and what book were you reading, Alex? I think it was Voltaire. <laughs> I might be unbearable. <laughs> no, I gamble really hard and then dance a bunch. And I normally win something in a silent auction. A lot of my house furnishings have sort of come from there in various ways, including my very lovely cat tree. Oh, yeah, that is a good cat tree. What's a cat tree? Uh, it's like a thing that your cats climb on and scratch. So I won one of those at a social. It was hard to get back to my place. And also my roommate or my upstairs neighbor had made it. We used to live together. So he had made it for the social, had to drive it there, and then we wanted to drive it back to the apartment, and he was not impressed. <laughs> it was so hard to move. It's giant. Um, we also have tremendous temperature ranges uh, here in Winnipeg. I actually looked this up. Our record high has been 42 degrees and lowest low minus 48 degrees Celsius. And that's without wind chill or the humidex or anything. That's brutal. It's brutal. Every <laughs> Winnipegger has like a box of like the non-seasonal clothes somewhere in their <laughs> like basement. Yeah. You got to change them out every now and again. Uh, we're also the Slurpee capital of Canada. Uh, the world of oh the my world Sl- yeah slurpy capital of the world uh yeah i feel like regardless of weather if you go out in winnipeg and drive around you will spot a man at a bus stop in cargo shorts <laughs> drinking a slurpy <laughs> the cargo shorts is really key to that picture I think. oh yeah it's 40 below and he's got those shorts on yeah they and he's go not down taking to- them off no they go down to his knees they're enormous okay but there was a guy <laughs> who wasn't wearing pants until the jets won are the blue bombers who was it 
There was a guy that was only wearing shorts until a sports team won. I feel like he was probably already doing that. Let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was just a clever justification for his fashion sense. It's a very Winnipeg thing to be like, no, I don't wear a jacket. (laughs) My brother doesn't wear a jacket. I know he doesn't. It worries me every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he just wears a sweater. Why does he wear a jacket? He just doesn't feel the need to. He doesn't really get cold, so he just just wears a hoodie. He wears a sweater and sneakers year-round, even in the summer. Sometimes I'll wear a t-shirt. That's a pretty big day. Jeez. I don't know. His fashion sense is confusing to me. My dad gets really worried about your brother. I know he does. It's cute. <laughs> your dad is very worried about my family in general. He, he is. <laughs> He's a worrier. Uh, the other fun thing about Slurpees in Winnipeg is that they do have a Slurpee day where you can sort of fill up anything you want for the same price as a large Slurpee. They put bans on that lately because people got out of hand with it. I saw someone bring a giant plastic pool once. <laughs> that was... I don't know what you would, like, I can't imagine drinking that. That's insane to me. But then there was also, like, milk yeah. cartons are pretty common. I always heard the day is coming, and then I'm, like, driving downtown, and I'll see someone carrying a bunch of empty milk cartons into the 7-Eleven, and I'm like, uh, oh, right, the Slurpee thing, of like, course. Like, we love a deal here. That's part of that, I think. Like, <laughs> are you actually going to use or drink it? Maybe no, but not, it was but on sale. It was Can on you believe sale. it? <laughs> Can you believe how cheap that was? Can you believe how cheap this frozen sugar water was? <laughs> We also film, I would say, a surprising amount of movies in Winnipeg is one of the fun ones. And they're not good ones generally. I will preface it with that. Uh, Hallmark movies, like, specifically. Yeah, Winnipeg's uh, downtown can be quite picturesque, especially when you cover it in fake snow and candy canes. So last year in 2019, they filmed, I think, 13 Hallmark movies. I know because I watched all of them. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of nice, actually. Like, you're walking through downtown and all of a sudden it's, like, picturesque winter fake snow Kind of a fun film crew setup Santa's going on. Santa's there. Yeah. yeah. It's the same generic Hallmark cast every time. Yes. I watched so many last year that when I did see a Hallmark actor downtown in person, I almost waved and said hi because I thought I knew him. <laughs> <laughs> I caught myself just in time. But you had just seen him in 13 films. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. I, this is a friend of mine. Yeah. Um, other, this is like more broadly a Manitoba thing, but every small town in Manitoba has like a world's biggest thing. Yeah. Um, so like Narcissus has a big snake, um, Gladstone has a happy rock, ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in Altona, there's the giant portrait of the sunflower painting by Van Gogh. Right. Which we just saw a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Um, Camarno has a giant mosquito, which is one of my favorites. There's a big pumpkin in Roland. I think Arburg has the giant curling rock. And I think St. Claude has a giant pipe. There's basically endless ones we could go through. Yeah. It's a big list of things. They're very fun to visit. Yeah. Oh, in um, Spirit Sands, there's a giant camel. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. I don't know why this is. It was like a bit in corner guess, too. It might just be a weird prairie thing. I think it is. It's like a reason for someone to come to your small town. Kind and of. I got to say, it does work. It does work. I will go and visit the giant thing. <laughs> well, you did go visit the giant mosquito. I did. I did go. I specifically went to visit the giant mosquito. Uh, we also have the largest French-speaking population outside of Ontario and Quebec. Yeah, yeah, so that's very cool in St. Boniface or St. Boniface. Am so, I, are you, are you bilingual, Nick? No. All right, I will be our, our French-speaking rep here. Yeah, no pressure or anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, you're doing this entire episode in French. I can't oh, believe no. I forgot to tell you. <laughs> I think I had this nightmare before. <laughs> so yeah, those are some pretty definitive Winnipeg things. I feel like there's more we're missing out on. There's a lot of eccentric stuff going on in this city at yeah. all times. Which I'm sure will come up. It was the murder capital for a long time. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. Murder capital of Canada and the oh. knife crime capital of Canada more specifically. Here's a fun thing. A fun research thing. So oh, I know. Alex, seeing... is this fun or is this sad? N- yeah, it's, it's the second one. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you about it yeah. anyway. So I kept hearing things about how New York was like a nightmare town. Mm-hmm. back in like the 70s and 80s right you always hear about how it like got cleaned up it's a lot nicer now but back in the day it was like whoa it was really dangerous and I was like I wonder to what extent that's true so I looked up the murder rates of New York back in like peak crime days and here in Winnipeg and in fact per capita we have a greater crime violent crime rate than they did <laughs> So, I mean, I think, you know, we have much, like, far, far fewer people, so it doesn't feel like as much crime, but, but, (laughs) that's not a, that's not a good pitch for Winnipeg. I'll say that Winnipeg doesn't feel dangerous to me. No, I've almost never felt threatened downtown, (laughs) and I feel like the weird encounters I've had have not been threatening, but just, like, strange. Yeah, just strange most of the time. People telling me, like, two personal details about their life on the bus. (laughs) But their dad, who was an oil painter, now they're not as good of an oil painter, but one day they'll get there. Oh, That was a long conversation I had once. What? I don't know. I didn't ask to be a part of it. He came up to me and just opened with that. And I, I listened until my bus came and then I left. <laughs> I just had to sit on that for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, on the whole, Winnipeg is not a very scary city. Not no. to like paint a very dangerous picture of it. It's fine. Yes. Like I live right in the middle of downtown and very happily. So with all of that said, do you want to move into maybe the history of Winnipeg? Because that's yeah. maybe a bit more of a mystery to people or who are from here. There's, I would say, on average, two things that anyone knows about Winnipeg. And it's Hulu Ellis, in that the Winnipeg general strike happened here, but not necessarily in what year it happened. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, like, in our podcast, we want to try and talk about stuff that's, you know, maybe not been covered quite as much. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there are tons of good sources on Louis Riel and on the strike, but uh, yeah, a lot of other bits of of Winnipeg history are very unknown, even to the people who live here. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I guess I'll I'll start here with kind of the deep, deep history. So people have lived in Manitoba for about 12,000 years, actually, like more broadly, um, but in the region of Winnipeg for several thousand of that, because for time it was covered by Glacial Lake Agassiz. So as it disappeared, people began to move in. Um, In particular, the place where the Red and Assiniboine Rivers meet was a meeting place, um, and today still is. Of course, you guys know what we call that today. The Forks. That is the Forks. Um, And around 1285, the Forks was the site of a treaty between several First Nations, so it's a really important archaeological site as well. Um, Europeans first started coming here in the 1700s, uh, the French first, because of the fur trade. And in the 1800s, we start seeing English settlers arrive. As a result, the first ever treaty signed in Western Canada was signed here in Manitoba in 1817. So European settlement sort of continues to grow and grow. And throughout the 17 to 1800s, it's largely the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company that are sort of sending people out as part of the fur trade. They're looking for beaver fur to make hats and things like that. So there's a bunch of sort of colonies and settlements cropping up around trading posts. And there was one called Red River that would become Winnipeg. And... As we get closer to the end of the 1800s, the fur trade's really in a decline. Beaver hats aren't quite as popular anymore. They're not making money. Outrageous. Uh, and unsane to me. Beaver hats do look very cool today, I will say. They've got some, like, flair to them. Yeah, I mean, if you wear one now, it's like a cool, I would look weird. weird. It would be a statement, for sure. Yeah. But the Hudson's Bay Company began looking to sell sort of what is now Manitoba. It was then known as Rupert's Land to the newly formed government of Canada. But this raised some flags for the people living here, namely uh, Manitoba's Métis population. 
So for those that might not be familiar, Métis people are generally the descendants of indigenous and French settlers, or indigenous people and French settlers. But that identity is a little more complicated than that. That is a thing that other people can look into. There's great sources on that. It's not hard to find. Right. I always had a hard time when I worked uh, in museums trying to give like a 30-second pitch of what Métis means. Yeah. It's a much more complicated thing. But they are their own, they have their own distinct language and culture and identity. And there was a very real concern in Manitoba in the 1860s that the Canadian government wasn't going to respect that. And I would say that worry was completely justified. So in response to rumors that the Canadian government wanted to buy, a man named Louis Riel began sort of talking to people and reached out. And basically, when the Canadian government sent in land surveyors to divide up the property in Manitoba to sell to settlers, they blocked them and said they couldn't get in. And with that, Riel formed his own provisional government and basically created kind of what is now Manitoba. But Riel's main demands were stuff like fair representation in the government and guaranteed protection of land rights, language, and culture. And this didn't go over well with some of the Anglo-Saxon settlers here in Manitoba. And they formed a sort of Canadian party that opposed them. And then Riel arrested his opponents. And things sort of went to a head when he arrested and then executed Thomas Scott. Right. Thomas Scott was a known agitator, a fairly well-known racist in town. It was not particularly well-liked, but he was also white and Catholic, right? I don't know, he's Protestant. No, Protestant, yeah. Thomas Scott was white and Protestant, and he was executed and then buried in an unmarked grave. To this day, we don't know where he was buried. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. It's. I mean, there are a couple of theories. Some people think he was just tossed in a river, and that's why they can't find it. Right. But this got back to Ontario, and it didn't sit well with the Canadian government, and they sent in uh, Governor General Wolseley, or, or General Wolseley, and his forces, and by the time the military arrived, Riel had fled. And they took over, and Manitoba officially joined Confederation in 1870. And Riel has sort of a complicated legacy today, still. Yeah, it's People's, changed a lot, I think, over yeah. the last years. If you took history in, I would say, anything pre-1980, he was probably branded a terrorist. Mm -hmm. And that has changed a lot. And if you talk to some old-timers in Manitoba, they'll still hold that belief. Today, I would say also outside of Manitoba. What I've heard from non-Manitobans is that they're still, in some cases, uh -huh. taught that Riel is a, a sort of a traitor figure. Yeah. But today, he's considered the founding father of Manitoba and sort of a national hero. Yeah, there's been some movement to name him, actually, as the first premier. Yeah. I don't know if that kind of got any traction, but... Yeah. But, yeah, his history beyond Manitoba also... Like, it goes on for another decade past this point. He goes to the States. If anyone knows anything beyond the initial sort of occupation in Winnipeg, um, he sort of hear, he hears voices and people talk about him going crazy for a little bit and then coming back in later to lead the Northwest Rebellion. Right. And there's a lot of kind of super problematic um, things written about Riel going through this kind of yeah. period of mental illness as well. But that's sort of how Manitoba gets its start is through Riel and his cabinet. And unfortunately, their demands were not exactly well represented. They were included in the Manitoba Act of 1870 when we joined, but they weren't always respected. And they're still sort of... Um, an effort to reclaim Métis land rights language and culture to this day. Yeah. What's yeah. the Manitoba Act? Um, it was basically the like agreement that led Manitoba to join Confederation. So Made Manitoba part of Canada, yeah. effectively. Detailing like statements and concerns and stuff like giving Métis land scripts out. So basically promising Métis families a certain amount of acres of land. Oh boy, we might have to do an episode about that at one point. Because <laughs> what a mess. Yeah, that's, oh boy, it's a disaster. Yeah. They made it very hard to get your land grant. And then there was a whole lot of scamming and scheming. And basically a lot of Métis people were swindled out of land and money and yes. forced to move away. Um, 
Yeah, so um, at this point, there is a settlement here in what we today call Winnipeg, but I'd say it could very well at this point have remained essentially like a small farming community, um, like many other towns throughout Manitoba. But what made Winnipeg different from other prairie towns was the construction of the railway. Um, Winnipeggers will probably be familiar with the expression that Canada was to be the Chicago of the North, or may have heard the term gateway to the West. Um, basically because with the railway running through it, and with its position right in the middle of the continent, it quickly became a transportation hub. Um, so pretty lucky, right? Except not really, because it was <laughs> kind of the result of more like minor corruption rather than luck. <laughs> yeah, there was a good swindle going on. There was a good too. swindle going on here. Yeah, so essentially what had happened is the federal government had made a decision that they were going to construct this railway across Canada, right? Makes sense. But they had tentatively chosen to build through Selkirk rather than Winnipeg with the, ta- the um, idea that later they might add a branch leading down from Selkirk to Winnipeg. So one thing about Winnipeg and the reason for that is that it floods. So people talk all the time here about the 1950 flood, which was a tremendous flood. Um, but the floods in the 1800s were unbelievable. Um, many people permanently left the Red River area because of them even. Um, Selkirk, meanwhile, had just about always managed to stay above the highest floodwaters. So objectively, it would have been probably a better setting for um, a cross-Canada railroad. Yeah, it seems Um, like a bad business model to have your rail line get flooded every year. Yes. Here's the thing, though, is that the Hudson's Bay Company still has their business going on in Winnipeg. And so they had an interest in keeping that railway Mm. or getting that railway here. So what they did is the land commissioner actually asked HBC employees in Winnipeg to write letters to CP Rail claiming that the river did not flood. So this is just (laughs) this is just an outright lie. Right. Like anyone even today, we have a floodway that prevents like horrible floods and we still get high waters. Mm -hmm. We still get flooded basements. So just an outright lie. Um. And then swindle on top of swindle here. Um, The city of Winnipeg also offered CP Rail essentially a bribe, $200,000 as an incentive. Yeah, I have to say no to that. Or or a bribe. Yeah. (laughs) To build through Winnipeg. I suppose when you're giving it to like the whole company rather than a single person, that's what makes it an incentive rather than a bribe, right? What a thin line, What a thin line. (laughs) So CP Rail goes to Selkirk and they say, look, we will continue with our original plan if you can come up with $125,000, which Selkirk can't do. And so despite being totally unsuitable, Winnipeg becomes a transportation hub and its population begins to rapidly increase as it's much, much easier to get here now. Yeah, and with that, it brings in a whole lot of new people and Winnipeg begins to boom at a extreme rate. Like population was doubling every year. It was ridiculous. There were some theories that if Winnipeg had kept growing at that rate, they would have reached a million people by the year 2000. Wow. Do you know how many people are in Winnipeg today? I know it's I not a million. No, I think it's a little less than 800,000. Yeah, it's around 800,000 in 2020. So we're not anywhere close to that goal we had no. predicted. But that was sort of where we could have been. Right. But Winnipeg worked as a transportation for the most part because we're right in the center of Canada. So if you're shipping something from Ontario, you can stop here, rest, and then carry your goods on further west as you need. And that led to a lot of warehouses opening up downtown and sort of a big wholesale industry growing. Basically, if you were selling, say, paint, 
and you wanted to sell paint to Western Canada to paint barns. Mm-hmm. You could set up a warehouse in Winnipeg and then ship things out as need came in because the rest of Western Canada wasn't quite as stable as Winnipeg was. Right. So it was a safe bet to start here. And I guess it makes sense if you're like working on the railway too to yeah. live here. And it's also why a lot of immigrants would come out too because you could take the train, you could stop here, you could stay here, you could keep mm-hmm. going. Mm-hmm. It brought people along for the ride. But then as this goes on, we also develop a massive grain economy which people care a lot less about because it's not very exciting no. to talk about, but it is important to the province. <laughs> the breadbasket of the country or something. Yeah, something uh, yeah. like that. We shipped our first bushel of grain around 1876, I believe, and then we were shipping millions of bushels by the late 1890s to the point where we were producing, I think, 80% of North America's grain, if not more. Wow. Like a lot of it came from Manitoba, and that's a huge industry because mm-hmm. you need farms and then you need mills and you need to process everything, so... It's a huge attraction. And it also brought in a bunch of farming companies like John Deere. I can't remember any other ones. Right. I mean, even if you drive outside of Winnipeg today, like the entirety of Manitoba essentially is this sort of patchwork of... Especially uh, southern Manitoba, yeah. Yes. Patchwork of farms, right? Yeah, you're right. Up in northern Manitoba, it's a little harder to farm. If you take the 75 going south, you'd see exclusively hay bales and tractors. Yes. But another thing that brought people out here was a fairly dedicated immigration campaign that was led by uh, Clifford Sifton. Basically, he wanted to target Eastern Europeans, thinking that they were sturdier folk who could handle the land here better. (laughs) So he puts out these pamphlets in Eastern European languages across places like the Ukraine and Russia, and then people would see them, and they would be promised like a bountiful harvest in the West, and they'd Mm -hmm. come out here and often realize the land hadn't been cleared, the soil could be quite rocky. Right. It might be harder to keep than they thought, and there were stipulations that made it difficult to keep your land, but... Um, once you got here, it was very hard to leave. Yeah, I you mean, spent to, all your money moving over to go all the way back home. And like every so often, I'll come across a little bit of land that hasn't been cleared, and I just think about like it's so scrubby, just dense with yeah. like these tiny little kind of trees and branches and bushes. It would have been hard work. Would have been hard work. More work than I would have wanted to do. But all of this puts Winnipeg on a fast track to become one of the biggest Canadian cities. In fact, we were one of the wealthiest Canadian cities mm. by the turn of the century. Yeah, and the early 1900s is kind of what I think of as, like, prime Winnipeg Yeah, years. absolutely. Like, if you see, like, pictures of old-fashioned Winnipeg, it's probably going to be between, like, 1900 and 1920-ish, yeah. you know? Winnipeg is still kind of like a wild frontier town in a lot of ways at this <laughs> yeah. point, right? But it's it's kind of a neat time because it's, like, beginning to shape itself. It's building an identity, and it's building infrastructure, and so on. Um, but, by the way, all of that comes at the expense of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a great time of great hope, but also great hardship. Um, the city is tremendously divided. There's great wealth disparity. So a lot of people making, um, a lot of money, but even more people living in like desperate poverty. Mm -hmm. Um, so in the North end of the city in particular, and Winnipeggers will know that even today, there's a pretty sharp, um, dividing line in Winnipeg between, the north end and the south end of the city in terms of poverty and in terms of the state of the infrastructure even Mm -hmm. today and so that was even greater back then and so infrastructure in the north end was just like woefully inadequate like it was awful which is partly what leads to a typhoid epidemic in around 1904 which is caused by tainted drinking water Mm -hmm. so we know i love talking about typhoid yeah i know (laughs) i do too um But I won't go too much into it. Uh, But the important thing about that epidemic is that in addition to kind of leading us to restructure how our toilets work. (laughs) (laughs) Important. Important. Um, But it also leads the city to build an aqueduct bringing water in from Shoal Lake. 
Um, now, that's probably an episode on its own, but the short version is that the aqueduct is great for Winnipeg, not so great for the community at Shoal Lake. Yeah, which is an issue that carries on to this day. Absolutely. Yeah, it's something that we're really kind of only beginning to address in many ways uh, right now. Um, it's interesting, though, that you mentioned that they were expecting or could have been expecting a population of a million because that aqueduct was built for a population of a million people and is still the aqueduct that we use today because we haven't surpassed that. Still works. Yeah. Um, Now, the 1910s just sounds like kind of a series of tragedies when I lift them (laughs) off, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. But, But like, I mean, economically, actually, Winnipeg is doing pretty well at this Mm -hmm. point. But again, it's that thing of like, a lot of people, yes, are doing really, really well. A lot of people, not so much. Yep. <laughs> um, and in 1914, the First World War begins. Many Winnipeggers go off to fight. Um, partway through the war, we also actually institute prohibition. Fun fact, by popular referendum. Yep, Manitobans were very into the concept of prohibition. Yes, yes. not so much in Winnipeg specifically, um, but Manitoba in general did actually vote for prohibition several times before the politicians would allow it because they didn't want to say (laughs) goodbye to those tax dollars, (laughs) which is different than how it happened uh, in a lot of places. And then in 1918, another epidemic hits, uh, which is the Spanish flu. I imagine with everything going on this year, people have probably heard quite a bit about the Spanish flu this year. Um, And it hits a lot of Manitoba hard, but in particular, it hits poorer populations like those living in the Mm. North End, um, where the infrastructure is worse, where people aren't living, you know, quite as well generally. And that's essentially because there is no treatment for Spanish flu at this point, right? The treatment is basically stay home, stay warm, rest, eat good food, and hopefully get well, which is hard to do when you're living in dire poverty. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so people are sick, there's unemployment as the war ends and soldiers return, and you can't even have a drink to forget your problems. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not too surprising that there's a period of kind of general unrest in Winnipeg. And one of the results is the Winnipeg General Strike, which is still the largest uh, strike in Canadian history. Go us. Go us, yeah. Um... So that's kind of the end of Winnipeg's boom period. And I've occasionally heard people blame that actually on the strike. I think you've probably heard that too. I have absolutely heard that. It's much more likely though that it's due actually to the construction in 1919 of the Panama Canal. Yeah. uh, Which means that it's not necessary anymore to transport your goods across the continent by railway. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons that sort of go into Winnipeg's sort of slow decline. By the time we hit the 1930s, Winnipeg had stopped growing. The Panama Canal played a big role in that too. But another thing I've kind of heard is that the development of the West in general slowed it down. Like Winnipeg worked as a gateway town when the West wasn't developed, but if it's safe to build a warehouse in Edmonton, your business is going to be fine. Right. I guess we're not the only place to go anymore. Yeah. You just build in Edmonton. Why you need Winnipeg as a stopping point. Right. But then even stuff like this strike probably did scare some people off. Everything slowed down with the war anyway. But then you hit 1929 and the stock market crashes Mm. and everything plunges into the Great Depression. And making the issue worse in Manitoba is the Dust Bowl. There is a massive drought. That means it is much, much harder to grow grain. So that grain economy... And that's about all we do. Yeah. (laughs) We had built so much of our economy on the railway and grain that when you don't need those things anymore, what do you have? Right. So Winnipeg just sort of stagnates. And so does a lot of Manitoba, Mm -hmm. which has some net benefits now in the long run. 
You would see a lot huh. of cities as they grew would tear down old buildings to make way for the new. Mm-hmm. But Winnipeg just didn't have the money to do that. Oh. There was no money to spend on sort of big infrastructure projects, really. So that's why we have the Exchange District today, which um, is a National Historic Site in the heart of downtown. It's got around 118 heritage buildings within a 30-block radius. And they're there because we couldn't afford to tear them down. Yeah, we have an amazing wealth of, of historic buildings. I mean, I know for people living in, like, Europe, they're like, hey, those buildings aren't old. But <laughs> Ooh, 80 years old. How fancy. <laughs> Still like them, though. But there were some attempts to do some depression relief projects, which are basically big construction projects that could give people jobs. And that's where we get Winnipeg's very small collection of Art Deco buildings, actually. So if you go to the Winnipeg Auditorium or the Federal Building, those were both built in the 30s as an attempt to give people jobs in the Depression. And they may be one of the like handful of Art Deco buildings we have in this city. So yeah, the Depression doesn't really bring a whole lot of exciting new stuff outside of some a small collection of cool new buildings. But the Depression doesn't bring exciting new stuff. No, <laughs> outside know? of like some weird family stories on yeah. my thing about like working on a contract farm in Saskatchewan, nothing great. Yeah, but World War II does bring some sort of economic boom to the country. Yeah, so um, the 1940s here as in most places is defined by the second world war effectively i mean even so far away from the action i'd say that like manitoba more broadly especially not just winnipeg makes some really important contributions um one of those is the creation of raf flying schools here so that's royal air force um manitoba has a ton of wide open spaces which effectively act as runways Um, And, of course, that setting is removed from the war, so students aren't in danger as they're learning how to fly. You can imagine that trying to have a flying school, you know, in England during the Second World War, you know, probably a little riskier. riskier. (laughs) Um, Another really neat contribution, though, are Cree code talkers. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, so code talkers, and people may be more familiar with Navajo code talkers uh, from the U.S., basically military intelligence or military communication. Um, So they were um, people who were Cree and were using either their native languages or codes based on their native languages um, to transmit secret information. Um, So, yeah, so like I said, there were Cree, but also, uh, yeah, Navajo and other um, people with uh, indigenous languages as their native languages as well, who um, were parts of, of efforts like these. And the cool thing about this and why it's kind of clever is, of course, that for the Cree code talker, these codes are easily understood, right? But it's very unlikely to find, say, a German soldier who can understand Cree. Mm -hmm. And so this becomes an invaluable way of quickly communicating tactical information among allied forces. Um, Unfortunately for these soldiers, they were actually sworn to secrecy. And this stuff was classified until pretty recently, actually. And so their heroic actions essentially just weren't known until very recently. Oh, that's wild. Do you know when they, like, when they were unclassified? I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, there was, John Woo made a film called Wind Talkers. Oh, yeah. 15 or more years ago. Yeah. Starring Winnipeg's Adam Beach. Oh. Uh, as a Navajo, you know, wind talker, I guess. Yeah. And Nick Cage was the American... Of course he was. And they, they focused a lot more on Nick Cage and Christian Slater. Oh, of course they did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I think the Navajo Code Talkers are a little more prominent. I'm not sure why that is, if, like, the Cree Code Talkers were sworn to secrecy a little longer, or if it's just a matter of, like, that's American and they make movies and we don't, yeah. you know? That may be what it, it is. May be, it may be that, but I don't know offhand when it was declassified. 
Um, in Winnipeg specifically, we also hold one of the most interesting rallies to sell war bonds that I know of, um, which we are um, pegging for a future episode. So you'll hear all about that. It is one of the craziest Winnipeg stories I think we have. Yes, absolutely insane. And as a uh, sneak peek, it is a fake Nazi invasion called If Day. <laughs> I talked about that a lot when I was doing tours. Yeah, we love IFTE. But after the 1940s, a lot of North America sees a pretty big uptick in soldiers returning home, in the economy sort of booming. It leads to stuff like the baby boom and boomers as we know them now. Because people come home from the war and they get married, they have kids, and things sort of seem to settle for a bit. And that carries true for Winnipeg as well, because Winnipeg starts to grow a little bit in we get very excited and try to basically reinvent what Winnipeg is supposed to be. But at this point, Winnipeg had been a city in decline for many years, and there was this thought that we could reinvent what Winnipeg's whole identity was, which leads to a bunch of really exciting modernist construction projects on Broadway and in downtown. Not everyone likes modernist buildings that much. They are big, gray, clunky things that are pretty grid-like. Yeah. But it's kind of an exciting story straying away from traditional styles the effort was to create a distinctly north american style not tied to something like neoclassicism so you're not going to see like greek columns or anything like that it is a new thing not based on the past right and there's like there's a lot of really cool just like photos from that era too oh just yeah. like people standing around in like beautiful like 60s dresses and so many neon looking at like models of city hall yeah so you don't have to like modernism to get what they're trying to do. They wanted to rebrand Winnipeg as a modern city, mm -hmm. which brings us to stuff like the new city hall. And then um, Winnipeg's modernist quarter, which is a stretch of the exchange district from city hall to uh, the Manitoba theater center, where mm. you get stuff like the Manitoba museum and the concert hall. Those yeah. were both built as the centennial concert center in 1967 to 68. It was a Canadian centennial project. So it brings the arts back to downtown in a really major way. Yeah. It's uh, the, kind of 50th year of that stuff right now which oh, it's right, been yeah. it's been too bad because i think there were a lot of kind of big celebrations planned a lot of cool stuff could have come yeah from this, but, well that's couldn't, 2020 for you couldn't do it this year <laughs> but they are big modernist buildings they're made of concrete or tindal stone mm -hmm. and they make a pretty striking impression compared to the sort of turn of the century buildings you see throughout the rest of downtown mm -hmm. and it brings us stuff like the uh winnipeg symphony and the winnipeg ballet which are both very highly regarded cultural organizations to this day. In fact, the Royal Winnipeg Ballet is the longest continually operating professional ballet in North America. Right. One of the interesting things that I read online, I was looking at, you know, what some people felt defined Winnipeg, and someone was talking about how the arts are kind of more approachable here. Yeah. You know, I think we don't have a ton of, like, fancy rich people in Winnipeg, and so the ballet <laughs> can't be just for fancy rich no. people, right? It's got to be for everyone. Well, seeing the Nutcracker every year is a Christmas tradition for a lot of people at the ballet. Yeah, for my family, absolutely. Yeah. We didn't do that, but <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of people that do. I mean, it's definitely, it, like, it's not cheap. It's still an indulgence, yeah. but I think it is more approachable than those kinds of shows are in a lot of other cities. Yeah. Um, the downside is that people do wear their cargo shorts to the ballet. <laughs> oh, all the time, yeah. <laughs> There's no, like, formal dress code. There is no formal dress code at any event in Winnipeg. <laughs> So we have the concert hall, and then not long after, in 1970, comes the Manitoba Theatre Centre, which is more typically the hub of, like, regional theatre in the province. It is the oldest regional theatre in Western Canada, or in all of Canada, in fact. MTC was founded in 1958, hmm. but their big sort of current building was built in 1970. It is an award-winning brutalist building. 
It is very cool on the inside. The stage goes three stories underground, so it doesn't actually jut up above the skyline the way some current theaters will. Right. And so what is brutalism again? Um, it comes from a French word that I can never pronounce, <laughs> but it means exposed concrete. Okay. So basically you're showing the frame of the building without covering. Right. And what makes MTC so cool is a lot of the concrete is sort of curved in a way that would be really hard to do prior to, say, like 1940s technology. Mm-hmm. And if you actually get close to the building, look at it, it was poured into a wooden frame. So there's imprint of wood grain on the concrete. Oh. So you can see wood knots on it. Hmm. It's very cool. I like MTC. <laughs> but similar to the concert hall, I used to go there in high school all the time. And for the most part, it was a bunch of teenagers showing up and whatever they owned. Yeah. And there was one lady every time we went who came in a fancy ball gown. And she outdressed all of us every week. I mean, I, I am that person. Like, if I'm going to the opera, I'm wearing my fancy dress. Yeah. Man in cargo shorts, be darned. Absolutely. <laughs> but with all of this growth, there were some downsides. Alex mentioned earlier the 1950s flood, which was the biggest flood of the century prior to 1997. Mm. Basically, the banks of the Red River flooded over. An estimated 70,000 to 100,000 residents had to be evacuated from their homes. And four of the 11 bridges in Winnipeg were destroyed. Oh, geez. So it was a massive amount of property damage. It was around, I think, $60 million to $1 billion estimated. So it was significant. And there are photos of downtown Winnipeg with, like, ankle-deep water. Because hmm. it got so far in. After this, though... Um, our premier, Duff Roblin, came up with a pretty good idea to redirect the water around the city through what's now known as Duff's Ditch or the Red River Floodway. That significantly saved Winnipeg later on, but it was a pretty big technological advancement for us as well. It was very cool to have. Some mm-hmm. people weren't thrilled. I know someone called it Duff's Folly before <laughs> right. it had been built. But it did save Winnipeg later on. But there were some pretty good visionaries in Winnipeg at the time, including Duff Roblin, but there was also Stephen Juba, who was Winnipeg's longest-serving mayor and mm-hmm. had a lot of really big ideas for what Winnipeg could be, including a monorail system that never got built. I feel like Stephen Juba just had a lot of big opinions. Too. Oh, big, he was a big, <laughs> like, just a big man in terms yes. of, like, character and personality. I love Stephen Juba. He's weird. The monorail was a weird one. Why didn't the monorail happen? I assume finances and also people were campaigning more for transit, like buses. It would be incredible to have a monorail. There may have been cons- some concern with wind, oh, which yeah. I would flag as the immediate issue. <laughs> it is, a, yeah, it is a windy city. But we are transitioning from streetcars to buses at that point, so a monorail is a pretty weird jump mm-hmm. to go back to rails but high. <laughs> right? But she was the one that brings us uh, the Pan Am Games in 1967. Mm. So this is the fifth Pan Am Games to ever happen. It is the Pan American Games. There were... Um, 28 nations competing in this. It was basically the Olympics for North America. And it brought a lot of people to Winnipeg and actually led to the construction of some new buildings as well, like the Pan Am Pool that was built for the Pan Am Games. Yeah, I used to go there when I was a kid. I did too. I used to jump off the diving board and then also always belly flop. I was too scared to jump off the diving board. (laughs) Oh, Alex. (laughs) I used to take diving classes. Oh. And we'd go off of the the 10 meter or whatever. Yeah, couldn't do it. They turned the jets on. Oh. Yeah. yeah. It was the coolest feeling. Wild. Yeah. But a lot of Manitoba gets sort of caught up in the Pan Am Games. So if you went to Birds Hill Park, there would have been horse jumping. They would have done boat racing out of Gimli. It was a fairly big national event. Prince Charles came to Winnipeg to give an opening address. Hmm. So it's a big national event. And then Winnipeg stalls out again. Yeah. All of that growth sort of peters out by the mid-1970s. But in the 80s, we see more of an effort to preserve our buildings. 
So there's some stuff like reopening Art Space, which is where Cinematheque, the only independent theater in Winnipeg, is open right now. Cinematheque is awesome. It's everyone, really cool. Everyone yeah. should go there. And there's a bunch of artist galleries in the upper levels. It's a repurposed warehouse. It's when the King, King's Head opens downtown. It's a really old pub in the exchange. It is very cool. Mm-hmm. It's built an old uh, furrier's office, in fact. <laughs> and but, again, like the cool thing of like Winnipeg things are sort of approachable. Like you can go to this pub in this like old building and it's like, it's for everyone, right? Yeah. It's, it's a very chill vibe. Yeah. So Winnipeg sort of stops growing, and the next, the next two big events we see sort of come in the late 1990s. That is the um, flood of the century in 1997. I do actually just vaguely remember this. Yeah, I remember it a little bit. So I grew up outside of Winnipeg in a town called Morris, Manitoba, and Morris, Manitoba was evacuated in 1997. Right. So we've I'll, had a lot of conversations about the dike around. Mars. I've been trying really hard to explain the dike <laughs> to you. It's not a moat. <laughs> what I've had is what I've had explained to me many times. Yeah. So basically, following 1950, Morris had been covered in water. So they built a dike around the town, which is essentially I call it a reverse moat to Alex. <laughs> it's basically a big pile of dirt that surrounds the town and sort of a hill. And then you have like roadways going through, but if a flood comes again, you can sort of slowly build up the access points until they're covered and closed. Right. And it stops water from getting into town. And uh, my grandparents' house was torn down to make way for the dike in oh. 1950. So do you remember being evacuated? Oh, not well. I must remember sandbagging at my grandma's house. And right. not like I was sandbagging. I was like watching other people do all the heavy lifting. I was two. Yeah. I may have, no, I was three at the time. So my family actually lives um, very close to the Red River near a park called Fraser's Grove. And what I remember very vividly is just very high waters there. Fortunately, our house is at the top of a hill, so we were never in all that much danger. So thanks to Dove Stitch, Winnipeg didn't get flooded. Yeah. That really saved the city because you likely would have been evacuated as well if you were really close to the river. So yeah, basically a lot of small towns got evacuated. People in Morris got about two days notice and then had to very quickly pack up and leave. And they were away for weeks to months, depending on the damage they faced or how long it took the flood water to sort of clear out. And that's so crazy to me that like, the the idea is just that you like lock up the whole town and just go away for a bit that's basically what it is you cover the roads in dirt right you stop the water from getting in what like what if that just i feel like that's just like a setup for a nightmare scenario where you're like the last person left in town <laughs> oh, I'm sure everyone's been evacuated very without you we did come close to getting evacuated again in 2009 or 2010 because it was when i was in ninth grade so they actually closed the 75 north and south so the oh. main road was closed in and of town, and we played floor hockey or street hockey on the main street. Nice. Because no one can get in or out. The country kids couldn't get into school. They oh. got uh, packages sent to them. Huh. Yeah. Um, the flood caused $3.5 million in property damage. Oof. But the city didn't suffer that much damage in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I suppose without the floodway, that would have been much, much more. Yes. And then in 1999, the Pan Am Games comes back to Winnipeg. Hey. And it's the same thing as last time, just more 90s stuff. I think my dad volunteered at it because we have an old Pan Am jacket somewhere in my house. (laughs) And I remember vaguely going to it, but not super well. So past the sort of 2000s, Winnipeg hasn't changed a whole lot over the years. It's become more and more of a tourist destination in the past, I would say, five years or so. Or at least we're trying. We're trying, yeah. (laughs) But there's been a pretty significant uptick in like people coming through and checking things out. And that is because they're spending a lot of money on stuff like the Human Rights Museum and Mm -hmm. the new conservation gardens, our conservatory in Assiniboine Park. I have also seen a lot of people coming through on their way to Churchill. Churchill has definitely become a bigger tourist destination. And so a lot of those groups stop in Winnipeg because, you know, aside from the polar bears, there's not sort of a lot of museums and such in in actual Churchill. 
So yeah, throughout all of this sort of Winnipeg history stuff, there were some really cool things that Winnipeg was working on and inventing. And Winnipeg is the first, or the inventor of a lot of things that we don't normally think of traditionally. Right. Um, so I think by virtue of being the oldest city in Western Canada, there's a lot of like first university and first hospital and stuff like that. So a lot of old Winnipeg institutions are the first of its kind anywhere in the West. Hmm. So like University of Manitoba was the first college right. in all of Western Canada. It was founded in 1877. It was also an agricultural college, so you went there to learn farming. Right, which makes which explains why it's kind of way in the middle of nowhere, which yeah. is super annoying. If you look at the boundaries of Winnipeg in 1877, it was very much north of the Assiniboine in the universities, very far south because it was you had farmland around it. You were mm-hmm. farming there. But uh, there was also the first Canadian movie ever filmed here. Oh, what movie? Um, it was called Ten Years in Manitoba. Oh. It was directed by James Freer. It was uh, filmed in 1897, and it's all been lost. Oh, there right. is no evidence of it at all. There <laughs> are some is... promotional like photos. So I feel like that is going to be a pattern in the research for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things go missing a lot. Things go. We don't take the best care of our records here. But it was... that is not a slight to our archivists. <laughs> we try our best. Try. I feel like it was just years of decline. Yes. We're like, eh, whatever. Who cares? We're not going to keep this. No. And then we lost a very cool like documentary of early Manitoba because yeah. it was produced by the CPR. Oh. To, like, bring people into the West. Right. So James Frew, the director, basically toured it around Europe, showing the film off. Because mm-hmm. there was a number of things, like, um, the arrival of the CPR Express at Winnipeg and six binders at work in a hundred-acre wheat field. <laughs> Those were the exciting scenes you could see if you watched Ten Years in Winnipeg. We also have the longest skating trail in the world, depending mm-hmm. on the year. Basically, the river at the Forks freezes on both the Assiniboine and Red River. Um, in 2019, it was 9.6 kilometers long. Wow. I'm one of probably very few Manitobans who cannot skate. I cannot skate either. I have the okay. weakest ankles in the world. <laughs> me too. <laughs> it's a very sad thing to watch Actually, me try. I can skate in a straight line for short bursts. I just have to kind of <laughs> angle myself towards the snowdrift. That's all. That's really sad. <laughs> I just don't try. I just can't stop, so I just sort of, you know, veer myself into a soft yeah. bit of snow. Sure. And All I'm right. good to go. <laughs> That's very Alex. It's very, yeah. We are also the first province in Manitoba to give women the right to vote. Some women. But white women the right to vote specifically. <laughs> this is in 1916. Um, the woman associated with this is Nellie McClung. She was also part of the, the famous five who... Uh, made women legally recognized as people in Canada Yeah, in 1929. That is a super interesting case, the personhood case. Yeah, but in 1916, Anglo-Saxon women got the right to vote. Mm -hmm. This excluded a lot of people, including Indigenous women, uh, Eastern European immigrants. Mennonites specifically were included, (laughs) or excluded. This is probably because they were um, pacifists and thus anti-war. Right. In the middle of wartime, you don't want people who don't support the war voting. Yeah. I think was the basis for that. But a lot of people were excluded from that act, and it took many, many years for some people to get back in. I believe for Indigenous women, it was like 1961, 1962? The 60s, for sure, yeah. So it took decades. Mm-hmm. But Winnipeg is a very early start for that women's rights movement in a way that's very exciting and interesting. Yeah, and Nellie McClung, I think, has become like a much more controversial figure She in, has, yeah. Well, Nellie years, McClung was very is... specifically anti-immigrant. Yeah, and I think a lot of those suffrage, like suffragists kind of relied on like building themselves up at the expense of other people. Yeah, I feel like that could also be a whole episode on oh, its own. Yes. The rhetoric they used is so strange. Yeah, which is like not to denigrate the amazing thing that they did, but... But... Well, maybe it is. <laughs> maybe a little bit. <laughs> maybe a little. No, I know the argument was often something like, oh, look at these immigrants making a mess of the country. Women are good at cleaning. Let oh, us geez. clean it up. 
That is the gist that's, of it. And that's what we call feminism, kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's that. Yeah. Uh, we also used the first three-digit emergency number. Oh. In all of North America. So you know how we call 911 today? Yeah. That started in 1959. Oh. Prior to that, you had to call the actual full police number. Right. Or find a police call box. Jeez. Like, so you had to memorize. You had to like memorize full... the number. I guess it probably was shorter then, but still. It probably still would have been hard to remember, because also if there was a fire, you were calling the fire department. Oh. 911 consolidates all of that, right? Yeah. So it connects you to who you have to go to. Right. You would have to know fire department, ambulance, and police. Mm-hmm. So Winnipeg starts that in 1959. It would have been a 999 number, which is what they used in England. I think, I don't know why they changed that exactly. But it was changed to 911 in 1972. The, what I've heard, and I don't know if this is kind of like urban legend or if this is true, is that it was changed to 911 from 999 because when you had rotary phones, oh, it took right. longer to dial the 9 because it had to go all the way that around. That would make sense. This is what I've heard. I haven't, I haven't looked into that. We're not going to look it up at all. We're, gonna We're not going to look it up. We're just going to tell you fun facts and tell you that we don't know if they're true. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make you do some of the legwork here. Yeah. <laughs> Here is a fun history fact that may or may not be real. <laughs> we can't tell you for sure. <laughs> Winnipeg is also the founder of Harlequin romance novels. Mm. This is a personal favorite of mine. So it was founded in Winnipeg by ni- in 1949 by Richard Bonnie Castle and two of his partners. And the company had a bit of a sensational debut. The book was called The Manatee by Nancy Bruff. And the summary... The man... That doesn't sound very sexy. Uh, wait till I get to the blurb. <laughs> um... The bold, nakedly revealing story of a sea captain's savage mismating of the strange children he sired of the unspeakable act that sealed his fate. Oh my. (laughs) I have not read this book. I might have to read that. I feel like we do have to read it at some point. But um, Harlequin Romance moved to Toronto in 1969. It's still Mm. one of the largest publishing companies in the world to this day. But they got their start here in Winnipeg against all odds. With the manatee. (laughs) What a novel. And how could it not sell with that title? <laughs> right. With that background, with that story too, right? <laughs> the unspeakable act. What's the, uns- What's the unspeakable act? We have to read it to find I out. Guess, uh, and I guess we can't say it on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is- <laughs> on on the internet. <laughs> I feel like censoring on the internet is a very weird choice yeah. to make. <laughs> Said it's unspeakable. Well, <laughs> You'll write it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Stay tuned for a very long social media post about the manatee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In a less sensational twist, Winnipeg also invented uh, polythylene garbage bags. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, it was invented by Harry Wasilek in 1950. They're now known as Glad Garbage Bags. Great. But they're a big thing. We still use Glad Garbage Bags. I use garbage bags every day. I would hope so. <laughs> Yeah, so that's a Winnipeg one. And also, we get pizza pops from Winnipeg. I had a pizza pop for lunch today. And a piece of cake. You told and me. a piece of cake. Because <laughs> I'm an adult. Pizza pops were invented in 1964 in Winnipeg, and they're still sort of a staple of the frozen food market. I feel like, I mean, I'm sure that we did invent pizza pops. On the other hand, I feel like there are similar things that it was probably like. Uh, they're like a calzone, but it's frozen. It's just a calzone. It's the frozen thing that was key, though. Right. Oh, yeah, because I guess, you know, there's refrigeration all of a sudden. Yeah, so it's a big deal. You can finally freeze your food and make it later. So. Right. Have a later calzone. So. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine they just called it that? A later calzone. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I had for lunch today. <laughs> 
So yeah, there is a lot going on in Winnipeg that I think not everyone knows about, but that's a pretty good sort of short overview of at least our favorite things that come from Winnipeg. I'm sure we've missed some stuff. I mean, we're going to miss many, many things. This is realistically, it's the things that we find interesting. So if we thought it was boring, that's why it's not in here. That's why we didn't talk for too long about like the grain exchange or the fur trade. Uh, just wait until I pitch a whole episode about just the grain exchange. No. Based on only the accounts of the old farmers I know. Oh, great. <laughs> I've, changed, I've changed my mind. I want it now. <laughs> There'll be a lot of opinions on the Canadian wheat board and what happened to it or what should have <laughs> happened to it. And who had the best threshers? Oh. And the neighboring farms. Uh, you might have to explain to me what a thresher is. I'll do that later. Okay. <laughs> That's an off the air thing. That's an off the air. <laughs> it's not exciting. Yeah, so that's been um, sort of a basic overview of Winnipeg history. Um, today was a real kind of survey, but in future episodes, we're going to touch on some more kind of niche topics and do real kind of deep dives into them, spend way too much time researching tiny little details. And then come up with ultimately nothing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're going to be talking about um, a few different things over the next few weeks. Uh, like I said, we're going to be talking about If Day. Woohoo! If Day is very day. exciting. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, ghosts and seances in Winnipeg. It's going to be very fun. I'm excited for you to do that one. Yes. We're also going to be doing um, hockey. Yes. Which is a very big topic in, I think, all of Canada. Yep. But yeah, Winnipeggers go pretty crazy about oh, hockey. Oh, we love our hockey here. Yeah. And also, we're going to do an episode on Winnipeg myths and legends, because there are a lot of strange urban rumors about this city, and some are true and some are not, and they're all weirder than you'd think. Yes. <laughs> and then we're going to touch a little bit on uh, dating at Winnipeg Beach. Which will be very, yeah. yeah, we got some good ones planned. Oh, very risque. Not really. <laughs> 19, <laughs> early 1900s dating. <laughs> so no one was reading the manatee? <laughs> I mean, maybe they were. Could be like one of those calling, like, I'll meet you at the beach, and if you're reading the manatee, I'll know it's you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell someone, get them to listen to it. And if you didn't enjoy it, maybe tell someone you don't like and make them listen to us instead. And definitely don't tell us because I don't want to know if you we don't, don't want like your it. opinions. We don't want <laughs> only good opinions, please. So you can follow us on uh, Facebook and Instagram at one great history. We're on Twitter as the number one great history. And you can also visit us on our website at onegreathistory.wordpress.com where we'll post fun sources and pictures and all sorts of other things like that. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Thank you.